Hey, man, how's it going, y'all? I'm Scott Horton. It's my show, The Scott Horton Show. Hashtag Scott Horton Show. I'm trying to log into the chat room here. My Skype computer exploded. My Skype computer is also my chat room computer. So I'm trying to log in the chat room a different way than I usually do here. Let's see if I can get this thing going. I guess I could just, uh, yeah, the site's working. I could just use a plain old browser window. Make a new window out of it. Nah, this worked. It worked with the chat, Zilla, there. It's a free node chat room, IRC. I'm not sure which one I'm supposed to say first. Is it an IRC free node chat room? Or is it a free node IRC chat room? I don't know, man. But it's hashtag Scott Horton Show. And some of the guys are in there this morning. Hey, guys. How's things? I'm Scott. Good to see you. Oh, cool, man. There's a lizard outside my window, but all I can see is the shadow of it. Awesome. Wow, he looks like he's inside, crawling on the blinds. But now I guess that's just the shadow. Rad. I should take a picture of that, man. That looks cool. Hang on a second, everybody. I gotta take a picture of this lizard real quick. Here, I'll play a soundbite while I'm taking my lizard picture. Don't run away, you dang thing. Here. Well, the Oriental doesn't put the same high price on life as does the Westerner. Life is plentiful, life is cheap in the Orient. And uh, as the uh, philosophy uh, of the Orient expresses it, uh, life is, uh, is not important. Yeah, that's uh, General Westmoreland there explaining why it's perfectly acceptable to kill Asians. Yeah, no, they don't even mind dying, really. There's so many of them. The price on each life is basically nothing. You see? Supply and demand. That's all. Yeah, this is what a government employee thinks of market forces. All right, yeah, anyway. Uh, I'm Scott Horton. It's my show. I got my lizard picture, so that's good. I've got Chris Ernesto coming up on the show today to talk bad about Bernie Sanders. Today's show... And I know I've been really focusing on Hillary and Bernie lately. Um, but that's all right. We've got plenty of uh, bad things to say about Republicans around here, too. Coming up in just a moment, in fact. Uh-oh, i got a burp. Hang on. All right, so Chris Ernesto. Chris Ernesto. We've run him on uh, Antiwar.com quite a few times in the last couple of years here. Uh, good stuff. And the best uh, anti-Sanders foreign policy interview that I've read so far. Uh, it's possible there are others, but uh, Ernesto's was the best that I know of. So we're going to have him on about that. Ramsey Barut is going to be on. Finally uh, got a hold of Ramsey. And we're going to be talking about Palestine with him, of course. And then our friend Sheldon Richmond, your friend and my friend, the great Sheldon Richmond, more libertarian than anyone. I mean, by my standard, I'm not saying he says that. I'm saying he's just about as plumb line as he could possibly be. Uh, Richmond will be on 12 to, to Eastern. Um, and we're going to be talking about trade. We're going to be talking about people trading things with other people with Sheldon. But no, it's going to be really interesting. Trust me. And it's also going to be about Sanders. It's going to be about Sanders and Trump. And about free trade and managed trade. and uh, 
all these different things. I think you'll like it. I think it'll be good. I think I better read the articles that I opened up on the subject during the commercial break because I forgot to. Well, I was busy this morning. The fuel pump is out on the truck. Well, one of the trucks. And, uh, well, one of the computers, the Skype computer exploded again. <sighs> so I kind of wasted my morning screwing around with that. But anyway, uh, I will read <laughs> those articles by Sheldon Richmond during the break. And I will be prepared in time for the Sheldon Richmond interview. That's one good thing is one of the good things about having uh, such long breaks here on the Liberty Radio Network. Sometimes I can do my homework during the show. Yeah. All right. Um, so listen, we got to talk Syria and all that, but uh, I'm really short on time for this segment already. You know, because I've wasted so much of it babbling. Um, so let me do Turkey Syria next segment, and then I'll just kill off this segment with the Trump thing. Did you see Donald Trump? In the debate the other night, uh, Saturday night, I mean, the debate was a just absolute dumpster fire. I'm not sure who coined that phrase. The thing is, I can't ever use it because every time I think of that phrase dumpster fire, I think about this. I think he was a 13 year old or I think he was 13, 12 or 13 year old black kid who went to prison for eight years for setting a dumpster on fire. Which, by definition, the thing is made of steel. It can't possibly spread. Like, you're not supposed to do that, you punk-ass kid. But he didn't hurt anyone. He's just a kid. And they went, well, he's poor and he's black and he can't afford a rich white lawyer who knows and golfs with the judge. And so let's lock him in a cage like an animal for eight years. Can you imagine that? I mean, when I was a kid... I accidentally set a guy's front yard on fire one time, but he put it right out. It was all right. We got away with it that time. But I had a friend who set a golf course on fire accidentally. And I don't know if he ever got caught for it or not, but he didn't hurt anyone. And to think of him going to prison, oh, and he was half black too. He only had half of a right to a life and his liberty, huh? Can you imagine? I'm trying to imagine. My buddy, my best friend from when I was in seventh grade or what, sixth grade, seventh grade, going to prison for eight years for an accidental fire that didn't hurt anyone or screwing around with matches and it getting out of control. Same difference. But anyway, I love the phrase dumpster fire. I just can't ever use it without thinking about this kid doing eight years in the pen, basically. A child for setting a dumpster on fire. That really happened. That's why I remember it. And it wasn't a Russia or Iran or communist China or fascist China. It was here in the fascist United States of America. It's really horrible. Can you imagine? You remember being 13 years old? You ever do something stupid? Eight years in prison. Anyway, so if you saw the debate the other night, it was an absolute dumpster fire of a debate. I mean, it's just insane. The whole crowd was all pro-Bush and pro-Rubio. Oh, no, but not that the Republican Party stacked them there or anything. They even threw up a graphic during Rubio's talking point about how he's not so pro-amnesty anymore or whatever. Which, how do you do that unless it was all pre-planned out and everything else? Have you guys seen about that? The graphic that they threw up for Rubio's talking points? And then, did they not think that we would notice? They thought it would subtly brainwash us, but that we wouldn't be able to rewind it with our DVRs and our YouTubes? Huh? 
But anyway, the big deal was that Trump fought with especially Jeb and Rubio over, no, George W. Bush did not keep the U.S. safe. The towers came down on his watch, okay? No, the clock doesn't start after the attack. The clock starts when he takes the oath of office. He was on the job for nine months, and as Trump said in the debate, the CIA tried to warn him, tried to warn Rice, tried to warn Bush, tried to warn Rumsfeld, tried to warn Ashcroft, and nobody knows why they just wouldn't freaking pay attention. Now, it is also true that the CIA wouldn't tell the FBI that, oh, yeah, by the way, there's some real ass Al-Qaeda guys in the country that you might need to focus on rounding up. So I'm not here to sing their praises or anything, but I'm just saying it's clear. It's on the record. There's a, In fact, there's a great article in, it is in New York Times, uh, it was published in the New York Times, but it was about how the Presidential Daily Brief of August 6, 2001, that was just one of many. There were at least 23 like that. But anyway, and then Trump goes on to just denounce the Iraq war and all the way through, trace the consequences all the way through the rise of ISIS the current refugee crisis, everything, all the way through. He didn't blame it on Obama getting the troops out. Now, he's still horrible and wants to invade and steal the oil and all this terrible stuff. But anyway, very important stuff to see finally being debated 13 years later. Hey, I'll Scott Horton here for Liberty.me, the great libertarian social network. They've got all the social media bells and whistles. Plus, you get your own publishing site, and there are classes, shows, books, and resources of all kinds. And I host two shows on Liberty.me. I on the Empire with Liberty.me's Chief Liberty Officer Jeffrey Tucker every other Tuesday. And The Future of Freedom with FFF founder and president Jacob Hornberger every Thursday night, both at 8 Eastern. When you sign up, add me as a friend on there. ScottHorton.Liberty.me. Be free. Liberty.me. You hate government? One of them libertarian types? Or maybe you just can't stand the president, gun grabbers, or warmongers? Me too. That's why I invented LibertyStickers.com. Well, Rick owns it now, and I didn't make up all of them, but still, if you're driving around and want to tell everyone else how wrong their politics are, there's only one place to go. LibertyStickers.com has got your bumper covered. Left, right, libertarian, empire, police, state, founders, quote, central banking. Yes, bumper stickers about central banking. Lots of them. And, well, everything that matters. LibertyStickers.com. Everyone else's stickers suck. All right, you guys, welcome back. I'm Scott Horton. It's my show, The Scott Horton Show. Anyway, sorry about the tangent there, man, about the dumpster fire thing, but that kid, he's probably still sitting in there, right? Anyway, uh, point is, oh, there's a few points. One point is, this is what Rand Paul didn't have the courage to do, fight about the wars with the Republicans. Oh, but you know, I'm trying to get power, but most Republicans don't agree with me about the war. Yeah, so tell them the truth. See if they agree with you then. Oh, I better launch my candidacy in front of an aircraft carrier and promise to be, you know, about two-thirds of the warmonger that Jeb Bush is. Is that good enough for you guys? <sighs> Douchebag. Loser. Instead, Donald Trump gets up there and goes, oh, kept us safe, huh? Well, and he's probably lying about this, but I don't know. Hundreds of my friends died that day, he said. Kept us safe? What are you talking about? Ouch. And, you know, I, I'm sure you guys have felt the same as me about that. If you're regularly listening to this show going back years, 
especially back when. I used to complain about that all the time. I can't believe that they say that. He kept us safe. He was the president for nine months before the attack. So, yeah, no. He didn't. And then, of course, you know, starting a bonus war for nothing that was an absolute disaster that killed 4,500 Americans and got tens, probably 70,000 or more maimed, wounded in one way or the other, internally or externally. Uh, created an entire new generation of terrorists. Kept us safe. Uh, so Trump just smashed him on that. Smashed him on, he said... There were no weapons of mass destruction, and they knew there were no weapons of mass destruction. Later, he backpedaled a little bit, but he left the possibility open. Hey, man, there sure were none, and it sure seemed like they knew, and this and that, and maybe, you know, someone ought to investigate. Of course, as Just Romano pointed out in his article, in the congressional reports, they explain, they admit, it's not even a secret, that they deliberately did not address the question of whether any of this bad information was the part of dishonesty or was there because on the part of dishonesty of anyone involved. They did not even address that. They did not attempt to investigate and address those questions. No, we're just here to say that, you know, what were there technical problems in the way some intelligence was introduced into the stream or whatever, this kind of thing. Entirely separate questions. And, of course, the answers there are bad enough. But anyway, of course, they had Naji Sabri inside the Hussein government on Hussein's cabinet. Said it's all gone. They knew it was all gone. That was why Dick Cheney and Scooter Libby and Newt Gingrich, working for Richard Pearl on the Defense Policy Board, made, well, just Cheney and Libby made 14 visits to CIA headquarters to pressure them into coming up with more lies. Gingrich, I don't know how many visits, but uh, he chipped in as well as best he could. And that was why in the Pentagon they created the Office of Special Plans in the first place, was because the CIA was dragging ass, as we say in the Texas construction business. And they would lie, but not good enough and not fast enough. And so they brought in Abram Shulsky to lie. And they put together the Office of Special Plans and the Counterterrorism Policy Evaluation Group to dig through the CIA's trash and cherry-pick out things that sounded incriminating. As well as, of course, pushing through all neocon media and lower-level officialdom in the government, uh, Dick Cheney and some of his uh, lower-down people, but mostly it was uh, the neocons in the media pushing the idea that um, that Saddam Hussein was even involved in the September 11th attack. And that Mohammed Atta, the lead hijacker, had met with Iraqi intelligence in Prague and the Czech Republic. Which you could tell Dick Cheney was lying because he called it Czechoslovakia. Yeah, he met him over there in Czechoslovakia. Which hadn't existed in more than ten years at that point. <laughs> or approximately ten years. Anyway. Um, and then, uh, yeah, anyway, just the point is that Trump did the fighting that Rand was too much of a frady cat to get into and he's winning it. you know ron's problem was ron was too much of a gentleman 
So Ron would say, hey, listen, I really think you should read these books and educate your informed opinion, right? He would never go, like, let me tell you about this crank Rudy Giuliani, all right? Da-da-da-da-da-da-da, the way Trump would, or the way a regular politician might actually tangle with these guys a little bit. So Ron's problem wasn't that he was a coward. Ron's problem is just that he's got too much class. Rand doesn't have class. That's not Rand's problem. Rand's problem is he's too busy down on his belly, flip-flopping around, trying to figure out which orders to obey, which truth to try to avoid having to say. And it's funny because he still thinks, uh, I already covered this on the show, he still thinks that whatever the problem was, it wasn't that he wasn't libertarian enough. Nobody asked him if it's uh, if it was the dishonesty, maybe. But anyway, so they're pissed off at Trump because, well, he's the Republican front runner, and he's just completely uh, renouncing the entire Bush Jr. legacy that the rest of the Republican Party is still wedded to. And it's because he's smart; he knows that this is a uh, albatross around the Republican Party's neck. And uh, it's weighing him down. He wants out from under it, and it helps him smash Jeb at the same time, too. And uh, it's huge, man. You know, um, Sam Husseini, we're running a piece by Sam Husseini today at Antiwar.com about it, where Husseini, I don't know everything about him, but I think it's safe to say that he's a leftist or a, a principled progressive of some kind. He's certainly not a right-wing libertarian capitalist type or anything like that. Not that I consider our libertarianism right wing, but you know everybody else does or anything or whatever. But the point is, here's a leftist, and he's not praising Trump. He's saying, listen, for good or ill, he is what he is. But the good part of it is that he's willing to have this fight. He's willing to say these things that no one else will do. And then, but look at the politics of it. It's virtually, I think, virtually guaranteed at this point that Donald Trump is going to be the Republican nominee. And then. But it's also virtually guaranteed still that Hillary Clinton will be the Democrat nominee. Well, she was for the Iraq war and he was against it. And she's the Democrat. And Trump is going to just completely beat the crap out of her with that. And so that's a great argument for the Democrats to uh, nominate Bernie Sanders. And I'm terrified, too of what this guy could do to the American economy, and for that matter, with the wars. We're going to cover how bad he is on the wars here in just one moment uh, after this next commercial break, but compared to Hillary. But you know what? The, um, the, the polls have it that he is a better swing voter getter than Hillary is, that in the head-to-head matchups with Trump, he consistently fares better than she does, contrary to the establishment conventional wisdom. That she's more centrist and so therefore more likable. She's more dishonest and therefore not likable. That's the problem. She wears her ambition all over her sleeve or written all over her face or that kind of thing. I love Bitcoin, but there's just something incredibly satisfying about having real, fine silver in your pocket. That's why commodity discs are so neat. They're one-ounce rounds of fine silver with a QR code on the back. Just grab your smartphone's QR reader, scan the coin, and you'll instantly get the silver spot price in Federal Reserve Notes and Bitcoin. And if you donate 100 bucks to The Scott Horton Show, he'll send you one. Learn more at Facebook.com slash Commodity Discs. CommodityDiscs.com. 
Hey, I'll check out the audiobook of Lou Rockwell's Fascism versus Capitalism, narrated by me, Scott Horton, at audible.com. It's a great collection of his essays and speeches on the important tradition of liberty. From medieval history to the Ron Paul Revolution, Rockwell blasts our status enemies, profiles our greatest libertarian heroes, and prescribes the path forward in the battle against Leviathan. Fascism versus Capitalism by Lou Rockwell for audiobook. Find it at Audible, Amazon, iTunes, or just click in the right margin of my website at scotthorton.org. All right, y'all, welcome back to the show. I'm Scott Horton. It's my show, Scott Horton Show. I really screwed up there, man. I meant to uh, not address politics in the second segment, but instead address the top headlines on antiwar.com right now. Turkey attacks North Syria, targeting Assad's military as well as the Kurds, as the U.S. urges Turkey to halt serious strikes. As Saudi Arabia confirms deployment, to Turkey in the name of fighting the Islamic State, but I think we already see what their agenda is. And this is, of course, right at the same time that John Kerry has hammered out some sort of so-called peace, uh, you know, ceasefire, uh, with the Russians. And what a disaster. And I emailed Patrick Coburn, but it didn't work, but I'll see if I can get him on the show tomorrow, everybody, to explain what the hell's going on if we all live that long. All okay. right. Uh, but now on to our first guest on the show today. It's Chris Ernesto. And uh, he's a regular writer at antiwar.com. This one is called Bernie Hysteria and Liberal Hypocrisy. Welcome to the show. How are you doing, Chris? Doing great, Scott. Great to be on with you. Uh, very happy to have you here. And um, and very happy to see this article. Uh, it's very important. I think, um, well, I really like how you do uh, toward the beginning here where you talk about, um, <laughs> you know, it's funny. You make the analogy that uh, what would happen if Gloria Allred started donating money to the Bill Cosby Rape Defense Fund, or if David Duke started donating to Black Lives Matter, <laughs> or, or or members of MAD, Mothers Against Drunk Driving, helped publicize an Anheuser-Busch ad campaign. Um, this is the level of hypocrisy that we're talking about when it comes to leftists and liberals, uh, so-called peaceniks, supporting Bernie Sanders. Is that your claim here? Yeah. You know, when we, uh, we've we been doing this for 14 years, and many of the times we've been protesting against the wars, there have been liberals who have joined us, and they've been absent as of the past eight years. So we're trying to find ways to reach people just through facts. So we just want to know why is war the one area in which liberals are willing to accept this lesser of two evils? And why do they constantly accept promises of less war in place of guarantees of no war? Well, of course, the answer is because Ted Cruz. <laughs> right? I and mean, that's the beauty of the left-right system is no matter how bad our guy is, their guy's worse. So we'll settle for 99% pure evil to avoid 100 You know, it's, it'd be fine if those same liberals would make concessions if, their candidate was just a little bit better, but still really bad on gay marriage or the environment or workers' rights, maybe race relations or a woman's right to choose. They're unbending in that area, but on foreign policy issues, they'll accept someone that possibly might be a little bit better. As it turns out, their guy, Barack Obama, has ended up bombing more countries than George W. Bush did. Yeah. Well, and I guess they really just deal with that dissonance by ignoring it, right? 
Yeah, there is a lot of willful ignorance that we've noticed. And, you know, when they, uh, when they are quick to point out facts about the, the Bush administration, they really do not want to hear the facts as it relates to, you know, we, we try to talk to them about uh, Bernie Sanders agreeing with Barack Obama to add U.S. troops to Eastern Europe, and eh, they don't even want to hear about it. And then we say, but Bernie Sanders wants to continue Obama's drone policy, and he supports Obama's airstrikes in Syria. He supports the U.S.-Saudi invasion of Yemen. Bernie Sanders supported the war in Afghanistan. He supported a U.N. no-fly zone in Libya. He supported the neo-Nazi-aligned coup government in Ukraine, supported Israel's war in Gaza in 2014. And as you and Sam Husseini have talked about, he's called on the Saudi Arabian dictatorship to get their hands dirty in the Middle East. Uh, You know, they just don't want to hear it, though. Yeah. You know, that is an interesting thing, isn't it? Because, you know, the, the easiest answer is, that nationalism is sort of kind, and we'll get back to that record that you mentioned there in a sec, but, um, you know, nationalism is sort of a pseudo-racism, right? Where even if you're uh, black or Mexican, when it comes to our government killing foreigners, you get to be an honorary white person, and then, you know, it's American supremacy instead of white supremacy, but it basically serves the same thing. It makes it okay to nuke cities, makes it okay to carpet bomb them off the face of the earth. I don't know. I Usually, I guess I would say because they look Japanese or because they look Arab, but maybe it really is just a matter of distance. And that because I don't it sounds kind of silly to just accuse liberals and leftists of being racist against Arabs because, I mean, mostly they're not right. Uh, They would stick up for the rights of Arabs in America if they were being discriminated against. But I guess it's just the amount of salt water between here and there. What do you think? Oh, that is such a great point. The the liberals are cheering when Sanders says that he doesn't want to kick Muslims out of the United States. But then they turn a blind eye to the fact that he wants Muslims in the Middle East to bomb and shoot each other. And Sanders talks about, not just Sanders, the Democratic Party talks about supporting women's rights in the United States. But at the same time, they support Saudi Arabia who is one of the worst regimes in the world on women's rights. So I think you're right. It's, as long as it doesn't happen to us here, if it happens overseas to those people with my tax dollars, I can just turn a blind eye. Yeah, the funny thing about that is I can understand the mindset, not that I would agree with it or anything, but I can understand the mindset when it's the era of World War II and – you know, Japan and their society at that time and the way it was portrayed, they might as well have been Martians, right? It was the, their humanity is just completely denied by everyone, basically, in a way that I'm not saying it was really plausible, but I can see why and how people bought it. But in 2016, and you can't be on Facebook or Twitter or whatever that you don't have Facebook friends in the Middle East. These are real people. The world has shrunk since then. Never mind. I'm not talking about government control and all that, but I'm just talking about the ability of the average Joe in any society in the world to talk with each other and to see each other's news. Like you mentioned uh, Bernie being so bad on the Gaza War 2014. The Gaza War 2014 was the first one where the Palestinians were able to tweet what was happening to them in real time and the first one where the Israelis therefore lost the PR war in the United States of America as it was going on. So... I don't know. It just seems like they 
they've got a really shoddy excuse uh, when it comes to you know looking the other way on these things because it turns out that Iraq is not so far from here. You know, when uh, Obama got elected the first time around, I think many people had a sense that this was going to normalize the whole war on terror and American exceptionalism. It was really going to suck people in, and we've seen it happen. Um, You know, when John Kerry was running against George Bush in 2004, so many liberals were like, we have to do everything we can to get rid of Bush. And, of course, we got to get rid of Bush. But they put forth this John Kerry. And at one point, John Kerry put on his website that he believes in preemptive war. And ABC News reported it. And at the time, you know, times have changed. Preemptive war was taboo. Now everyone says it. But back then you couldn't. And we were telling people, but this guy Kerry believes him. No, he doesn't. And so we showed him ABC News. That's propaganda. Well, actually, it's on his website. Go check it out. And that actually turned some people and made them say, you know what? I'm not sure that Dennis Kucinich is electable, but I'm going to vote for him anyway. So um, in Florida at the time, a lot of people in the anti-war movement that I'm involved with were registered independents. And they said, you know what? I'm going to register Democrat for this primary so I can vote for Dennis Kucinich just so we can make a statement. Well, the sham democracy that we live in by the time the primary votes came to Florida, John Kerry already had enough votes to secure the nomination. And that was the final straw for many people. Right. And, of course, you know, his wishy-washiness that you cite there is exactly why he lost to George Bush. In fact, I've been, I've been calling Rand Paul Jeb. I should be calling him John Kerry because that's the better <laughs> example of flip-flopping around and being so damn wishy-washy that, hey, you agree in the same problem, but you just don't want to do anything about it, you lose. And I'm sorry, we'll be right back after this with more with the great Chris Ernesto from Antiwar.com. Hey, all Scott Horton here for WallStreetWindow.com. Mike Swanson knows his stuff. He made a killing running his own hedge fund and always gets out of the stock market before the government-generated bubbles pop, which is, by the way, what he's doing right now, selling all his stocks and betting on gold and commodities. Sign up at WallStreetWindow.com and get real-time updates from Mike on all his market moves. It's hard to know how to protect your savings and earn a good return in an economy like this. Mike Swanson can help. Follow along on paper and see for yourself. WallStreetWindow.com Hey, all Scott Horton here. It's always safe to say that one should keep at least some of your savings in precious metals as a hedge against inflation. And if this economy ever does heat back up and the banks start expanding credit, rising prices could make metals a very profitable bet. Since 1977, Roberts & Roberts Brokerage, Inc. has been helping people buy and sell gold, silver, platinum, and palladium. And they do it well. They're fast, reliable, and trusted for more than 35 years. And they take Bitcoin. Call Robertson Roberts at 1-800-874-9760 or stop by rrbi.co. All right, y'all, welcome back. I'm Scott Horton. It's my show, the Scott Horton Show. And uh, you know what? I'm messing up here. I'm talking with Chris Ernesto, and I didn't give you a proper introduction because I can't seem to find it anywhere, but I know that you have this peace group, uh, St. Pete's for Peace. Is it? Can you tell us all about it, Chris? No, don't worry about it. Yeah, so no, I, no, no, I want to give you a chance to talk about it and at least introduce yourself properly. <laughs> No worries. Since I didn't. <laughs> it's okay. So St. Pete for Peace is an anti-war group. We're nonpartisan, and we started in St. Petersburg, Florida, before the 2003 Iraq War. And we regularly protest. We write articles. We produce videos. And for 10 years, we've been showing a free weekly movie um, on socially conscious topics. And we just maintain our principles that we are opposed to wars in any form, 
regardless of which party is doing it. Right on. And you got a great archive at original.antiwar.com slash Chris underscore Ernesto, which is unfortunate. It should just be Ernesto. <laughs> but anyway, original.antiwar.com slash Chris underscore Ernesto. And um, over the weekend, this was the Spotlight article, uh, Bernie Hysteria and Liberal Hypocrisy. And, you know, this is the thing, and I know you hear this all the time, but but if Rand Paul is scum and Bernie Sanders is scum, then, I mean, I know you don't prefer Hillary Clinton, the mad bomber. I know you don't prefer Ted Cruz, who wants to use nuclear weapons on him, spread gamma rays around. So, who do we believe in, Chris? There must be an affirmative answer to this question, they say. <laughs> you know, I have to say, Scott, I know a lot of liberals who are friends and and so many of them are really nice people. I know a lot of Tea Party I. I really like people. I think people genuinely, deep down inside, we always try to find common ground. And so when you have a discussion with a liberal about what's going on and you start making progress in the discussion, they always fall back on what you just said. So what are we supposed to do? Like they get all frenzied. And what we have always said is the same thing. Understand that you're a citizen of the American empire and your responsibility is to stop what your tax dollars are doing to the damage is doing to people around the world. You know, when you talk about elections and things like that, take a few minutes, decide what you're going to do, and then actually go out and do something that can make a difference. All right. Now, so let me ask you this. Uh, and, and you know what? Yeah. I agree with that. It's an unsatisfactory answer, really, because most of us, the best thing we can think of to do is, like me, a little radio show. You seem to actually have a little bit better of a work schedule as far as getting anti-war activism done. But it, it can be very unsatisfying <clears throat> to do this for years and years and years on end, and yet nobody listens, nobody learns, and the wars keep going on and that kind of thing. And it's a lot easier to believe in a candidate and then you know, vote. And then that either works or it doesn't, but then you're over it. You're off the hook within a few months either way and that kind of thing. So it's, it sucks if people get stuck in, in that political mind frame. But then again, Hillary Clinton is really, really, really bad, Chris. And so for people, I mean, she's never even mine. We all know. Okay. So for people who lean left at all, is Bernie Sanders not a better choice? Well, it's funny, because eight years ago, uh, Hillary Clinton came to Tampa, and we protested her, and Democrats were like, what are you doing? She's comparatively better to Obama. And so, think, you know, people change their mindset over time. And I'll be curious to see uh, if and when Sanders loses the primaries, are these same people going to support Hillary? To answer your question, no. In terms of uh, foreign policy, Bernie Sanders is not better because there are certain things that are black and white, and war is right at the top of the list. You cannot be for war in any form, and you cannot be for child molestation in any form. Racism, there's no degrees that are acceptable, and Bernie Sanders has a proven track record of being part of the American military establishment. And so many times I hear people say, oh, I know he's not perfect, but he, well, actually, Bernie Sanders is a lot closer to being absolutely imperfect than he is to being perfect. 
And when you challenge people on that, their, their go-to answer is, yeah, but he didn't support the Iraq war. Well, the response to that is, but he then voted to fund it on numerous occasions. And if that's your gold standard, then Donald Trump is your man, because he speaks out against the Iraq war even more vehemently than Bernie Sanders does. So the long and the short of it, on certain issues, uh, socially, domestically, Bernie Sanders and Hillary Clinton are pretty similar. And from a liberal's point of view, that is an improvement. So they're just going to have to make a decision. Are they going to be able to cast a vote for Bernie Sanders or eventually Hillary Clinton? And then are they going to be able to tell someone who lives in Yemen or Syria or Afghanistan that, you know, they, I had to vote for this warmonger because he or she is better on domestic issues? Could a Sanders supporter look a 14-year-old from Afghanistan who has lived under U.S. bombs every day of his or her life, could they look that 14-year-old in the eye and explain why they support Bernie Sanders, a man who supports the use of force in Afghanistan? Yeah. Well, and, you know, back to the metaphors and the analogies, that's what's most powerful for people anyway, I guess. What if he was for Jim Crow, but only in Mississippi and Alabama, <laughs> because they really insist there, and you just can't fight it. But in the rest of the South, they shouldn't have Jim Crow anymore. What if he said that? <laughs> you know? Like, yeah, no, you know what? Uh, like Rand Paul and Ted Cruz, he wants to bomb eastern Syria, but not western Syria. Hillary wants to bomb eastern and western Syria at the same time. So, these are the angels on the head of the, the devils on the head of the pin we gotta argue about. And you know what? This is kind of surprising to me. Not very surprising, but just kind of a little bit. And I've been watching Sanders for a while now, so I'm sort of just pretending to be surprised. But, he is an independent, not a registered Democrat this whole time. And, of course, being from Vermont allows him to be able to get away with that. But he calls himself a socialist, which means he's staked out a place further to the left than progressivism or something. And yet he really seems to have decided over many, many years now that, well, maybe just a business decision or maybe he just doesn't care that. He's just going to be pro-war on all this stuff. It's not going to cause too much trouble with his base, and it's going to keep him out of trouble in Washington, D.C. I mean, when you go down your laundry list of things that he's bad on, it's pretty shocking. It's pretty much everything. Yeah, and when Barack Obama came into power, the United States people and people around the world, they were ready for different rhetoric. They were ready for the fear-mongering and the hatred to stop. And Obama just dashed those opportunities quickly. I'm not sure that our society is ready so much for a, a global change as they, people here want a domestic change. A lot of liberals, not all of them, many of them, they really just want a piece of the empire's pie. They're tired of the 1% getting, they want their piece of the pie. What we're challenging them on is stop the empire. You know, it may not be good for you personally, but it's going to be better for everyone around the world. And we're challenging these people, tell Bernie that you, you know that he's trying to downplay the foreign policy, but you know his positions. Push him on it. Challenge him. Tell him, look, I'm really considering how to vote. I need you to change your rhetoric about the drones. And don't, don't talk about sending more U.S. troops to Eastern Europe. Challenge your candidate. You don't have to pull support from him yet, but at least challenge him. And I'm not seeing too much of that. Uh, Scott, did you hear at the uh, debate last Thursday night when the moderator asked 
who would your uh, domestic and world leader, uh-huh. which one would influence your foreign policy decisions? Right, this is Clinton. where they had the big fight about Henry Kissinger, right? <laughs> it was hilarious. And she pulls out Kissinger and the blogs and Twitter world was going crazy about Hillary Clinton saying Henry Kissinger. But what they forgot and didn't mention is that Bernie Sanders said the person that would influence his foreign policy was Winston Churchill. <laughs> I mean, like... Do people not know history? And Sanders, you know, I hear him talk about the overthrow of Iran's Mossadegh in 53. I'm like, yeah, right on. Keep going. Good job. But then the next minute, he said he's going to be influenced by Winston Churchill, the man who co-sponsored and co-orchestrated the same coup of Mohammed Mossadegh. Well, and, you know, they asked him about... Uh, the Islamic State and Syria policy right after Hillary's ridiculous answer about Syria and carving out a safe zone and all of this stuff with Turkey, which could mean war with Russia. And he goes, yeah, yeah, you know, I think we should get along with Cuba. So he absolutely <laughs> refused to to attack Hillary over Syria at all or or say anything about it. Uh, damn disgrace. All right. Well, listen, thanks very much for writing this article. Uh, Hawk eyes on this issue here. The truth about Bernie Sanders foreign policy, Bernie hysteria and liberal hypocrisy by Chris Ernesto at antiwar.com. Thanks, Chris. Thank you, Scott. Take care. Hey, all Scott here for Samurai Tech Academy at MasterSamuraiTech.com. Modern appliance repair requires true technicians who can troubleshoot their high-tech electronics. If you're young and looking to make some real money or you've been at it a while and just need to keep your skills up to date, Samurai Tech Academy teaches it all. And they'll also show you the business, how to own and run your own. Take a free sample course to see how easily you can learn appliance repair from MasterSamuraiTech.com. Use coupon code Scott Horton for 10% off any course or set of courses at MasterSamuraiTech.com. So you're a libertarian, and you don't believe the propaganda about government awesomeness you were subjected to in fourth grade. You want real history and economics. Well, learn in your car from professors you can trust with Tom Woods's Liberty Classroom. And if you join through the Liberty Classroom link at scotthorton.org, we'll make a donation to support the Scott Horton Show. Liberty Classroom, the history and economics they didn't teach you. All right, you guys, welcome back. I'm Scott Horton. It's my show, Scott Horton Show. I'm still trying to raise money to pay for the new servers. I know you guys are so happy to hear that we got new servers, at least in the mail. They're coming. So the website won't be going offline all the time and keep our archives up to date for you and all that. And I have a donor who promised some matching funds. Only need to raise $700. And um, he promised matching funds up to that seven. So uh, you could help out. Just drop by scotthorn.org slash donate if you're sick of seeing... 404 errors and internal server errors and error errors at scotthorton.org, like me. Thanks. Okay, good. Now, uh, on to our next guest. It's our friend Ramsey Baroud. RamseyBaroud.net is his website. He's the editor of PalestineChronicle.com, and his latest book is My Father Was a Freedom Fighter. <clears throat> My Father Was a Freedom Fighter, Gaza's Untold Story. Welcome back to the show. Ramsey, how are you doing? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me, Scott. Uh, very happy to have you here. Uh, not very happy to read your articles. Uh, I mean, they're really great and they're very important, uh, but they sure do bum me out. Um, that's how I mean it. Um, but it's such important stuff. Uh, next onslaught in Gaza, why the status quo is a precursor for war. So um, 
I guess the last big one was in 2014, uh, so-called Protective Edge. And um, I guess if you could just take us through, uh, you know, where we're stuck as far as uh, the relationship between the Hamas, I guess, trustees of the Gaza prison and their Israeli bosses. That's right. That's right. Well, I mean, it's important that we look at history, not not too far off, just a bit. Um, if we look back at, say, what happened since 2006, January 2006, there were, there, there were democratic elections in the occupied territories under military occupation, where Palestinians were hoping to um, elect their representatives to negotiate or to, you know, with Israel or to deal with whatever uh, uh, issue that requires uh, uh, collective representation of the Palestinian people. Hamas won the elections, uh, and they won with a, uh, with a landslide, by the way. Um, the outcome of that was Israel was not happy. The United States was, was not happy. And they pushed their European allies to completely boycott the government. Condoleezza Rice, I remember, uh, was the Secretary of State at the time, and she made it very clear that any government that involves Hamas, led by Hamas or uh, supported by Hamas, will be boycotted and no money will be allowed to that government. Mm -hmm. Uh, In reality, that was really the start of it all. And I'm sorry to interrupt you here, but can I clarify something with you real quick? Um, I remember reading at the time that the Israelis either, you know, stupidly or, you know, nefariously have withheld all of the uh, tax money that they collect from the Palestinian Authority, which basically made it impossible for them to buy up all their votes in the customary way, you know, spreading out the spoils. And that that really you know, had helped quite a bit to get Hamas elected in the first place. I wonder whether you think that was true, and then secondly, if you thought it was, if you think it's deliberate. I, I actually don't think that Israel wanted Hamas to be elected. In fact, I doubt that Hamas wanted Hamas to be elected. I think what Hamas was hoping to do, that they are going to achieve this kind of special status, that they are uh, present in, within the political landscape, that they are able to raise trouble, they are able to slow down Mahmoud Abbas and his Fatih movement uh, uh, in their attempt to, you know, kind of reach all of these concessions or compromises with Israel. Uh, but I don't think you really expected they are going to be in a position of leadership where they actually have to run the government and, and, and everything else that, that such a position would entail. Um, so it really did come as a surprise for Hamas to the point that until today there is a, a debate within the Hamas in, intelligentsia of whether that actually was the proper decision to make at the time or not. Um, aside from that, um, the Hamas's victory kind of really did initially create this, this kind of war that involved money, and the U.S. was leading that particular aspect of war. There was a political boycott which involved all Arab countries, the Saudis, the Jordanians, the Palestinian Authority, uh, Israel, of course, and European countries, and it involved violence. Uh, meted out by Israel on a regular basis. And that was really what my article was in essence about, is that if we look at what happened since 2006 until today, uh, it's, uh, you'll find out that uh, there has been this kind of like um, uh, a war every year, skirmish, a minor war, then a major war every two years. So there was a war in, two, uh, there, was, there were attacks in 2006, there were attacks in 2007, then you had the war of 2008-9, then you had uh, uh, attacks throughout, and then you had the war of 2012. 
And then you had the war, the massive, massive destructive war of 2014. Now we are in 2016. Let's hope that there's not going to be another war. But if you look at Israeli media, the, the Israeli military apparatus is already talking about Hamas has rebuilt all the tunnels. Hamas has uh, reinforced its position. Hamas is in a position where they could actually attack us and so forth and so on. So the buildup is happening. Now, those of us who are kind of really that's what we do for a living, we, we look at these kind of, you know, statements and compare various periods of history, you will find that we, we, we are there's almost a duplication of what happened prior to the previous war and the war before that and the war before that. Yeah. Well, you quote Gideon Levy here writing in Haaretz. Uh, oh, no, I'm sorry. Not in Haaretz. In, uh, in Haaretz, yeah. Oh, it is in Haaretz. I'm sorry. Oh, funny link. Uh, where he's saying, well, you know, um, you know, the it's the addiction to fear he talks about. And he says, um, Iran dropped off the radar. Sweden isn't scary enough. Hezbollah is busy. So we return to Gaza. You know, this has absolutely nothing to do with any, oh, the Gaza Strip is launching another one of their rocket onslaughts against us and we must defend ourselves. This is just Israeli policy for reasons that have virtually nothing to do with the people of Gaza other than they get to be the recipient. Exactly. I mean, when Israel holds off on attacking another country, uh, there has to be a compelling reason. Uh, the budget doesn't allow that we go for another war. The Americans are not really happy, and they are saying, just hold off. This is not the, the right time to do so. Um, and uh, the Israeli public, for example, is not really, do not have the appetite to take chances on another war. When it comes to Gaza, however, the situation is rather different, because you have consensus within the Israeli society. The, the political price is minimal. The financial uh, 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 responsibility of doing so is readily uh, provided by the United States. During the last war, President Obama had ordered uh, constant shipment of munitions and weapons and armaments to the Israelis while the war was happening, while the international community was screaming for Israel, stop violating international law, stop uh, committing war crimes. Yet the Americans did not really seem to have any particular moral problem with that whatsoever. So, so this is why, and, and in fact, and, and, and that's really rather important, that the Israeli left and right, so-called left and right, seem to be in agreement regarding the, um, the, the, the war on Gaza. They, they really don't, there are hardly ever any sense of disunity among Israelis when they attack Gaza. Even Merit, which is like the, the most dovish, so-called, of the dogs of, of Israeli society, mm -hmm. they were also supportive of the Gaza war. So it's, um, it's something that would help Netanyahu with his credentials. It, will, um, it could be an attempt for him to salvage his coalition government from collapse, to appease the right wing and so forth. But the outcome of which is always the death of thousands of innocent people and the destabilizing, the destabilization of the whole region um, and so forth. And now, you know, I think Americans, it sort of goes without saying we start this uh, interview in the middle, you know, as always. But it, it needs to be said because I think most Americans don't know that the Gaza Strip is basically one big refugee camp. And that's if you're being polite. It's mostly it's a prison for a population that are a majority under 18. So we know for just a mathematical fact, none of them voted for Hamas or even... 
lost and voted against Hamas back when they took power. So, so much for their collective responsibility, if you could even imagine such a thing. But now we got to take this break. I'm sorry. We'll be right back. And more with Ramsey Baroud about the tragedy of Palestine in a minute. Hey, Al Scott Horton here for MPV Engineering. This isn't for all of you, but for high-end contractors specializing in industrial construction and end-users who own and operate industrial equipment, MPV offers licensed professional consulting on chemical and mechanical engineering for your projects. Tanks, pressure vessels, piping, heat exchangers, HVAC equipment, chemical reactors for oil companies or manufacturing facilities, as well as project management support and troubleshooting for those implementing designs. MPV will get your industrial project up and running. Head over to mpvengineering.com. Hey, Al Scott Horton here to tell you about this great new ebook by longtime future freedom author Scott McPherson. Freedom and Security, the Second Amendment and the Right to Keep and Bear Arms. This is the definitive principled case in favor of gun rights and against gun control. America is exceptional. Here the people come first, and we refuse to allow the state a monopoly on firearms. Our liberty depends on it. Get Scott McPherson's Freedom and Security, the Second Amendment and the Right to Keep and Bear Arms on Kindle at Amazon.com today. All right, y'all, welcome back to the show. I'm Scott Horton. I'm talking with Ramsey Baroud of PalestineChronicle.com uh, about the situation in Palestine there. And now, so I guess, uh, you know, that last article, next onslaught in Gaza, why the status quo is a precursor for war, um, it seems like you're just waiting on a pretext now. If we look back at 2014, we saw the pretext there where um, a, a couple of you know, tied to Hamas types who apparently were not acting under orders of Hamas, kidnapped and killed three Israelis. And then the Israeli government pretended for two and a half, three weeks that they thought the boys were still alive and were out looking for them. Well, they were young men um, that they were still looking for them and went uh, uh, persecuting every Hamas member on the West Bank, whether he had anything to do with anything or not. And then even did strikes into Gaza, and people can go back and check the dates on all these things. The strikes into the Gaza Strip in the name of revenge over what was happening in the West Bank uh, happened before Hamas fired the first rocket back, or somebody did. And then once they fired one or two rockets back, then, oh, look, they just started it. And, of course, the war began. That's the... That's the M.O. over there, so I guess we'll all, you know, be waiting with bated breath and our eyes wide open for it coming. And, and of course, I guess they have plenty of, of pretext building up because all they got to do, Ramsey, is blame the knife attack intifada, as they call it, on the West Bank on Hamas if they want, right? That's a really good point, Scott. I mean, what what you just brought up here, the, the context of what happened uh, in the previous war, it's really rather very, very important because... Because what everyone was talking about then, that there was a third intifada, a third Palestinian uprising uh, that was culminating and taking place in the West Bank. And why, why the intifada is important? It's important because if there is to be an uprising, this corrupt Palestinian leadership is going to be swept away and, and there will be a new Palestinian leadership and Israel is going to find itself in a situation where business is not. Uh, uh, you know, as usual, the so-called security coordinations between them and this, you know, the, the corrupt Palestinian Authority is going to be uh, cancelled, and they will have to deal with a whole different reality and security situation in the West Bank. The reason they attacked Gaza in 2014 is that they wanted to create a distraction from the fact that there was a non-violent uprising that was building up and building momentum in the West Bank. Israel cannot deal 
with a situation where you have millions of people mobilizing in the street. It is going to destroy PR if, if, it, if there is any PR you know, of Israel that is still being preserved anyway. But that said, they needed to turn this into Hamas versus Israel, uh, and it's a war on terror and so forth and so on. So they needed that pretext so very badly. Everyone was like, wait a minute, but this event happened in the West Bank, the kidnapping of the settlers took place in the West Bank. Why are you attacking Gaza, as you said? Now the same thing could possibly be building up. There is an intifada, but it's an intifada of a different nature. We haven't, as of yet, seen full and complete mobilization in the West Bank. The Palestinian Authority has thwarted hundreds of attempts of Palestinians to mobilize. The Americans are making it very clear that if the Palestinian Authority does not crack down, they will not be getting their, their you know, monthly stipends or annual stipends. The Israelis are making it clear to the Palestinian Authority they have to stand, uh, uh, stand up uh, against the, the, the ongoing violence and, and the ongoing mobilization in the West Bank. If Israel finds itself in a situation where they have no other option but to create distraction, they will also find themselves back in Gaza. They will create a pretense, and trust me, Fox, CNN, everybody else is going to be on the Israeli side, regardless of the nature of that pretense. Of course. All right. Now, let me ask you about, you know, what is the the subtle truth of the knife intifada? Because it's it's pretty clear that it's happening. But on the other hand, there are a lot of accusations that, hey, that girl didn't have a knife at all. They must have just planted it on her. And um, and there have been, you know, attacks on soldiers, but also attacks on civilians uh, on the West Bank and off of it. And so there are a lot of accusations and conspiracy theories all around and whatever. And I want to know what you think is the real answer. You know, I wrote an article about this recently, uh, and the reason that I think that Palestinians are yet to mobilize uh, in, in similar fashion to the way that they did in the previous uprising, uh, um, where basically, you know, shops would close down and traffic and they would boycott Israeli goods and Israeli settlements, and they would make life extremely difficult for the military occupier to sustain their occupation. The reason that did not happen this time around, or not as of yet, is because of the Palestinian Authority. Because the Palestinian leadership, for the first time in the history of the Palestinian struggle, is actually more or less on the side of the Israelis. So Palestinians find it extremely difficult to mobilize. Another tool of mobilization that they always need are their local organizations, their NGOs, their local community organizations, and that sort of thing. These guys have already been cracked down on by the Palestinian Authority years ago. Every Palestinian organization, even if this community sports organization in some village somewhere in the West Bank would still have to get credentials from the Palestinian Authority who would not allow them to operate without ensuring that they are following the same political line that's agreed upon by the Palestinian Authority. Therefore, the mechanisms of mobilization that have always been used, historically used by the Palestinian Authority, by the Palestinian people are not there anymore. Even mosques, God, in order for a, a, a a preacher to, to give a sermon in the mosque on Friday, that sermon would have to actually pass through the Palestinian Authority censor to tell him, say this or don't say that. So how do people mobilize? How do they vent their anger, their sense of humiliation, their degradation, their, 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 their frustration? How do they do that? You have little kids, uh, today a 15-year-old, the day before a 14-year-old, the day before a 17-year-old, little kids, teenagers, whether, whether truly carrying knives and trying to attack soldiers 
or allegedly doing so. Either way, there is so much anger and frustration, but there is no, no space for people to express that anger and frustration. This is why we have this kind of protracted, since October really, so-called night intifada, because there is no space. The only space that's available for, for a, a teenager to grab a kitchen knife and to yell and run towards the soldier and almost never stab the soldier, always get, you know, get shot and executed sometimes right in the middle of the street. Um, so this is why we have this situation where it's really not a fully-fledged intifada as, as is always the case. Yeah. Well, and of course, you know, just like uh, here two days ago, 16-year-old Palestinian boy shot and killed for throwing stones. Uh, this is a population under occupation. And, and, you know, the American people, I think, really don't know. And I'm only just going by what I thought when I was 14, which is, I think, pretty much what everybody else thinks. And that is sort of under a vague impression that Palestine already is a state next door to Israel somewhere, and they just won't quit invading them and sending terrorists to attack them, and that this is Israeli land. It's never clear. It's always just kind of a confused confusion, but the point always being that the poor little Israelis are under assault from the children that they're occupying. And I think when we just state the simple truth of who's who, who are the redcoats and who are the colonials in this situation? It, well, colonials is a bad example. Who are the colonials and who are the red Indians in this situation? It becomes a little bit uh, clearer. But anyway, thanks very much for coming back on the show, Ramsey. I hope we can do it again soon. Thanks so much for having me, Scott. I really appreciate thanks, it. Everybody, uh, please check out Ramsey's archive at antiwar.com. We'll be right back with Sheldon in a minute. Hey, all Scott here. If you're like me, you need coffee. Lots of it. And you probably prefer it tastes good, too. Well, let me tell you about Darren's Coffee Company at darrenscoffee.com. Darren Marion is a natural entrepreneur who decided to leave his corporate job and strike out on his own, making great coffee. And Darren's Coffee is now delivering right to your door. Darren gets his beans direct from farmers around the world. All specialty, premium grade, with no filler. Hey, the man just wants everyone to have a chance to taste this great coffee. Darren'sCoffee.com. Use promo code SCOTT and you get free shipping. Darren'sCoffee.com. All right, you guys, welcome back to the thing here, man. I'm Scott Horton. It's my show, the Scott Horton Show. Hey, guess what? I got Sheldon Richmond on the line. Hey, Sheldon, how are you doing? I'm doing fine, Scott. Thanks for having me back. Very good to have you on. Uh, sorry, everybody, for the audio quality. My Skype computer exploded. I'm going to work on that. Um, but anyway, I can hear you okay. Um, Sheldon, I'm happy to have you on the show because there's some things I want to ask you about, some things that, of course, you've written about. Oh, and you guys know Sheldon. Uh, he's from all those libertarian institutions that you've heard of uh, over the years. Um, and uh, as a regular writer for antiwar.com, his own website is sheldonrichmond.com. Free Association, it's called. Free Association at sheldonrichmond.com. And uh, if you just type in Sheldon Richmond China, you'll get all kinds of stuff. Uh, decades worth of articles about trade. And so uh, I guess kind of sort of the way I want to set this up, Sheldon, is to try to put you on the defensive here. Uh, evil establishmentarians like Jeb Bush and Hillary Clinton, uh, they like all these big free trade deals with countries like Mexico and China. And the uh, insurgents from the outside, Trump and Sanders, they're sticking up for the American worker and the American people and saying we're sick and tired of these corporations moving all of American people, American workers' jobs overseas where they don't have jobs anymore. And... Um, now, even studies coming out talking about uh, 
you know, a, uh, life expectancy getting shorter and shorter for people as they just sit home drinking and smoking and dying, uh, instead of working. Uh, because, and, and, and I don't know if you saw this, but there's a viral video that Trump referred to in the most recent debate that was going around last week of this air conditioner company announcing to everybody, sorry, dude, we're moving the factory to Mexico. That's the way it is. Business is business. Gotta keep costs down. And so, um, I think I'm going to unfairly lump you in with Jeb Bush and Hillary Clinton and say you are for what's destroying America. And that is why everybody is turning to Trump and Sanders to save them from the destructive forces of the free market and free trade. Sheldon, so now defend yourself. <laughs> well, I must lodge a protest at being, at being thrown into the same bin with uh, Jeb Bush and uh, Hillary Clinton <clears throat> and, uh, and those others. Okay. Um, uh, just as a quick aside, uh, Trump ought to be of really uh, mixed emotions about uh, Carrier moving to Mexico, because if Carrier moves to Mexico and creates a lot of jobs down there, that'll be fewer Mexicans will stick across the border to come here. So he should be happy about that. <laughs> yeah. So I don't know why he hasn't at least given us a little uh, you know, asterisk to his uh, complaint about that. But um, here's what I'd say overall, just to get to the big picture first. Historically in the United States, free traders, have given free trade a bad name. Uh, and by that I mean the, the, lead, the leading American uh, uh, office holders and influential people throughout, I mean, from the very beginning of the, of the country. Uh, by that, but w- when they talked about trade, the people that were regarded as open to trade still saw that as a government policy. They wanted the government to open up, and this was true of uh, obviously manufacturers and merchants and whatnot. They wanted the government to open up markets, whether uh, using the full, uh, you know, range of, uh, of, um, of tools available, or I should say weapons, from diplomacy all the way to gunboats. Uh, that's what was considered free trade. Uh, and of course, the opposite side of that is, uh, you could withhold trade. And we saw presidents from early on, John Adams, uh, uh Thomas Jefferson, James Madison, uh, they they um, they uh, used trade as a weapon. They imposed embargoes. Jefferson called it peaceful coercion. If you want to make some sense of that term. So trade, even among people who were open to trade, like the idea of trade and didn't want to close themselves off, who were not, let's say, mercantilists, still saw trade as government policy, which means it was still being done at the bidding of particular interests. It wasn't just, hey, let Americans as individuals or as voluntary groups of individuals trade with whomever they want. Nobody was taking that position. Oh, maybe there were a few people that we would regard as the libertarians of the day, but they, they were not the influential people. They weren't making policy. So trade has always been seen as a government tool. And so these free, so-called free trade agreements, we shouldn't be surprised if that's just another form that this has taken. And there's agreements which are always, what, a thousand or more pages? I mean, if it's free, really free trade, why would you need a thousand pages? You just say, at midnight tonight, all trade restrictions in the United States are hereby repealed, period. That's it. Instead, there's all kinds of uh, commissions that are set up, and people can claim, hey, these are unelected commissions. How do we know what uh, these bureaucrats who get appointed, uh, how do we know what they're going to decide? What's the recourse if we don't like the decision? There's all those problems. A very big problem, which I heard you mention the other day, is these free trade, so-called free trade agreements always impose very strict IP regimes, intellectual property regimes, on developing economies. In other words, our so-called, uh, well, I'll say our, it's not mine, 
but the establishment's view of, of, of how patents and copyright should be enforced or should be enforced at all are imposed on budding economies, which has a stifling effect that makes them dependent on American manufacturers. That's not free trade. But it's called free trade, and therefore it gives, it gives plausible grounds to Trump and Sanders to complain about it as simply another form of big special interest, to well, uh, special uh, favors to well-connected interests. And, and they're right in that regard. However, it's not free trade. Okay, and now, so I want to get more into what is in those deals and, and things like OPIC, the Overseas Private mm-hmm. Investment Corporation, where government right. is literally subsidizing, encouraging companies to offshore, mm-hmm. doing everything they can to help them do it, and all this kind of thing. You know, pro-tobacco programs and anti-tobacco programs at the same time. It is government that we're talking about here. But yeah. Yeah. what about that maybe, I don't know, Sheldon, it sort of kind of sounds like a cop-out. Like, well, yeah, but true communism ain't been tried, and no true Scotsman would ever do a thing like that, so you must not be one. Um, because after all, Chinese will work for cheaper than Americans will. You can't deny it, man. Labor is cheaper in poorer countries, and so it makes perfect, just yeah. on paper, sense for American corporations to move their well, factories over there. Why wouldn't yeah, they? China, China, China makes the same complaint about Vietnam and other places, so uh, uh, Trump is only partially aware of this. So complain about China, and then he'll throw in Vietnam and say, well, you know, Vietnam, too. In other words, the, the wave of, uh, of uh, development toward uh, places with uh, abundant uh, uh, labor and therefore low-cost labor has already, is already passing China by and, complain, and people in China complain about that. So that's the way of the world. Under freedom, that's going to happen. But that doesn't mean people are then in a dynamic economy. If the U.S. economy were actually free, freed, uh, that doesn't mean people then are, are forever unemployed and sit around and commit suicide and drink and, and do that because there's nothing else to do. In a dynamic economy, I mean, look at all the jobs that exist today, even, even, in, even in our corporatist economy, that didn't exist. 10 years ago, 20 years ago, 30 years ago, 50 years ago. Who, sitting 50 years ago, we'd sit back, and I, if I said, well, you know, people will get work, uh, you know, programming uh, phones that we're going to carry around in our pockets that are going to be more powerful than, than what uh, they can put in a satellite today. You'd say, what are you, a dreamer? Are you crazy? In other words, we don't know what will come along uh, if the economy is actually free. But we know some things will come along. We can make that kind of pattern prediction, to use the highest phrase, the new things will come along, even if we can't say exactly what. Now, that gives us some disadvantage in making an argument, right, because we have to point to something vague. Oh, yes, yeah, something will come along. That's how, So you can easily say, oh, sure, something will come along, fine. But look at the past. Look mm-hmm. at the past. You know, imagine somebody from 1700 coming to the United States, uh, coming, uh, coming to our time and looking around, and you're taking them on a tour of a of the economy, of, the, of our society, and you show him your, uh, your iPhone, and he'll say something like, well, that's very cool and all, but uh, how, do you, how do you draw people away from the farm? I mean, don't you need people make, to, to grow food? How can you afford to have them making this thing, not food? Food's more important than this. And you'd say, you don't get it. We didn't draw people away from the farm. They weren't needed on the farm anymore. Now they're making iPhones or whatever they're making. I know iPhones are made in China, but something else. That's how economic development occurs when economies are free. All right. Now, hold it right there. 
I'm going to pretend to argue with Sheldon Richmond as best oh. I can more on the other side of this break. SheldonRichmond.com and Antiwar.com for his great stuff. Hey, Al Scott Horton here to tell you about this great new book by Michael Swanson, The War State. In The War State, Swanson examines how Presidents Truman, Eisenhower, and Kennedy both expanded and fought to limit the rise of the new national security state after World War II. If this nation is ever to live up to its creed of liberty and prosperity for everyone, we are going to have to abolish the empire. Know your enemy. Get The War State by Michael Swanson. It's available at your local bookstore or at Amazon.com in Kindle or in paperback. Just click the book in the right margin at scotthorton.org or thewarstate.com. Hey, I'm Scott. Welcome back to the show. I'm talking with Sheldon Richmond. He used to be at the Foundation for Economic Education, the editor of their journal there. He was at the uh, Future Freedom Foundation, editor of their journal there. Now he's regularly contributing for us at antiwar.com, and uh, he's written 10 million articles about the uh, what I would consider the, the most very libertarian take on every single thing in the world. Uh, just type in Sheldon Richmond and whatever it is you're interested in, and you're going to find something cool. Right now we're talking about uh, trade and how, well, Trump and Sanders, they're sticking up for the little guy by saying we don't want to have these deals uh, with Mexico and China anymore. Now, Sheldon uh, says he opposes whatever the current deals are that, you know, have all their flaws in them, and he would rather have actual free trade. Um, so we're talking about, you know, overall, I guess we need to get into whether protectionism could serve the American people better. I mean, after all, there are towns, I don't know, maybe this is more mythology than truth, Sheldon, but there are towns, I think, where, you know, almost whole towns are huge portions of the population of a town are built around one big factory, something like that. And when that factory closes, that's people's lives. That's, that's you know, uh, families separated from each other. That's human tragedy falls in the wake of that virtually every time. Um, and, and the, all the, all the people in town who didn't work for that factory still suffer the same loss and everything else. And you know how it is. So, um, you know, maybe Trump should threaten them to not move to Mexico and maybe the Mexicans should just make their own damn air conditioner company or something like that. Well, look, here's the problem. And, uh, when you legislate stagnation, which is what you would, you're saying, if we're honest about it, legislate against change, free, you know, freeze, uh, change. Uh, you hurt a whole lot of other people, uh, including people in the United States. Not, not only does it, uh, it harms the people who are way poorer in other countries, but it hurts Americans too. Uh, some, many of whom are, are not doing well. Uh, they'll be deprived of lower prices. They'll be deprived of products that would make their lives better or save their lives. Uh, so that's what you get from trade and the division of labor and comparative advantage if the government is not uh, tilting the scales one way or another. Uh, the great pro-peace, anti-war free trader of the 19th century in England, Richard Cobden, said that if you if you apply violence to trade, you you distort trade the same in the same way that if you apply violence to religion. It's not religion. So it's not trade if you apply violence to it. That means all subsidies, and I include the the military, uh, you know, the, the the War Department. I don't call it the Defense Department. Uh, the big military subsidy that, say, uh, you know, long, uh, long distance shippers get or the highway subsidies that long uh, distance uh, uh, road shippers, surface shippers uh, uh, enjoy. That's that's all uh, that's that's all subsidy that which comes, uh, at, you know, by uh, forcing other people. Mm-hmm. So, yes, you can look at a town that was built around one factory and say, look at the hardship. But in a, in a dynamic economy, there'd be change. Look, most turnover historically 
in jobs comes not from the fact that foreigners produce what those people used to produce, but from technological change. You know, factories today, uh, uh, automobile factories today, hardly have any people in them. It's all computerized. There's a few programmers sitting up in a control room and a few people on the floor. It's not the way it used to be. That's not because of foreigners. There are, mil- there are factories here. Manufacturing has not shrunk as a, uh, as a percentage. It's, it's only shrunk as a percentage of the economy because the, the, the service economy has grown. We're still, we still make a, a huge amount of things in this country, but we just need fewer people to make those things. Mm. Now those people are available for other things. If the economy were completely open and freed, and I mean by that sweeping away intellectual property, sweeping away licensing laws, building permits, uh, eminent domain, all the things you know, Trump would not be complaining about, uh, then you get a dynamism. But to say, in order to protect workers, we're going to freeze the, the current condition as it is, makes no sense. What if they had done that 50 years ago? You and I wouldn't be talking today, would we? Well, we might be talking over a landline, but we certainly wouldn't be uh, using computers to get on the air and things like that. So why is this, why is this moment in time the right moment to freeze? Mm-hmm. All right, now, so... so- I'm, I'm sure it's been a little while since you've read the thing, but so what is exactly then the difference between NAFTA and, uh, hey, let's just have free trade? I mean, what uh, all is actually in that thing other than opening few, the border to trade? A few, a few thousand pages, I guess, is the difference. Yeah, but I mean, what's on them? Maybe it just so, says, eh, a little bit of kickback here or there, but it's not really no, much. It, I don't know. It does, and it has all kinds of technical exceptions. They, you know, they made exceptions for sugar. Uh, they always do stuff like that. Uh, some special interest will get will get uh, set aside. Uh, you, like I say, you get uh, demands that there be uh, IP an IP regime, which is very stifling. Look, if a if a if a, if a factory in a very poor area, poor country, wants to uh, say the hell with Nike, well, we can make our own uh, uh, sneakers and export them to the United States. Nike will come in with all their power, all their money, all their lawyers, and say you're infringing on our our patent or our copyright or, or whatever, trademark, whatever, uh, even if they're not calling you a Nike, uh, and they'll crush them. So those people then become dependent on, on those factories. And then often those companies work with, uh, at least sometimes they work with the, the local governments there, the, the national governments in those poor countries, to drive people off the farms out of the rural areas by taking their land or whatnot, driving them into the cities so you have all this very cheap labor. Uh, available to uh, to Western-owned factories. That's not freedom. Now we can't really do anything about that. What a what a, what a government in uh, you know, Sri Lanka may be doing. The, obviously, we don't want the U.S. government dictating policy to them. But these so-called free trade agreements dictate policy to them and cooperate in the uh, you know dispossessing people of land so that they're now they have very little choice but to go into these factories. Uh, that's not free trade. And Trump ought to understand that. He's just He's, he's now a throwback to the old narrow-minded protectionism that doesn't understand these uh, positions. It's a very, uh, this, uh, this, Some this, of the economic. time, though, he sounds like you, Sheldon. Some of the time he says, I'm for free trade, but these are crooked deals, and I don't want these deals, which give the advantage to China, not us. Yeah, but he'd be saying the same. He doesn't like the idea of companies moving, period, out of the country. They're our jobs. They're not our jobs. We don't own You can't own jobs. And that's a, just a, a that's a know nothing appeal. That's, that's a throwback to the, the most uh, unsophisticated form of uh, protectionism uh, that exists. That somehow we own this economy, we own this culture. Look at it across the, all his uh, issues. 
We own the culture. We have a we, quote, we, meaning him uh, and his cronies, eventually, if you were to get into office, will decide what infringes on our culture, what infringes on our economy. That's not economic freedom. Free trade is what Adam Smith talked about, whether the, and he condemned all kinds of all the subsidies and, and interferences. Even if it's a, even if it's in the name of expanding trade, it's still government using force on behalf of uh, special interests. All right, now in the next couple of minutes here, last couple of minutes here, Sheldon, um, I want you to address the robots because you brought it up too. This is mm-hmm. this is the majority of the change when it comes to manual labor, factory labor. Uh, in American societies, the robots, and I don't know if you saw this, but you've seen them before in the past at least. Uh, this new one is from the Telegraph. Robots will take over most jobs within 30 years. Uh, Warren's expert, the rise of robots could lead to unemployment rates greater than 50%. And I know you're going to say, yeah, but they'll be driving prices down if we had a free market. Well, we don't, and that's a high unemployment rate. Maybe we need Bernie Sanders to put everybody on welfare. Well, robots aren't going to be performing uh, services. And, you know, I don't know why we put down the service economy as if that's something inferior. It need not be. Services can be finance, insurance, health care, a, a lot of things. Uh, you know, this is, again, a throwback to uh, uh, the idea of the physiocrats. The physiocrats believe that, you know, only, only working the land, the land was the only real wealth, right? Uh, this has gone through a series of uh, of uh, revisions of thinking where, you know, they pick up on one thing and say, that's wealth. And if that changes, oh, my gosh, the world's going to come to an end. At least our country's going to come to an end. Uh, lots of people, you know, reject this idea that someday robots will be doing everything. Uh, and don't forget, if they're making things that nobody can buy, then they're not going to stay in business very long. So, they're, you know, that can't, that can't be uh, uh, the, the, the long-term story. Uh, so I, you know, I think that's uh, we can reject that. I mean, I know Tyler Cowen, even a, you know, a fairly free market guy, has warned that we're in for this great stagnation. But even in his own thesis, he's he's just saying, oh, this could easily get reversed through some big discovery in ten years. But you know, the, the, it's 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 always bad to bet that there's not going to be some breakthrough that people make in the future because if they're free, there's an incentive, there's an entrepreneurial incentive, namely a profit incentive to make those big breakthroughs. And look at the breakthroughs we lived through that people weren't predicting. Most people weren't predicting. The few people that did were thought to be just visionaries who were unrealistic, utopians. Count me in. Freedom works. Sheldon Richmond, everybody. He's at SheldonRichmond.com. That's his great blog, Free Association. Just type in his name in China. You'll find a bunch at FEE and FFF and elsewhere. Thanks again, Sheldon. My pleasure, Scott. Anytime. See you all tomorrow. Thanks.